This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Bruce Mahart, author of the novel The Wake of Forgiveness and the short story collection Men in the Making. His novel was named a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection and a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Mahart is a graduate of Ohio State University's MFA program and is an assistant professor of English at Bridgewater State University. He lives in Massachusetts. We began the interview discussing how he came to writing. You know, I came to it late. I, um, there was no college savings for me, <laughs> and um, so I was working my way through school, and I think I was probably a 23-year-old junior in, at the University of Houston, um, and I was taking a class. Um, I was a literature major. It was a class on the, like a survey of the short story. We read all these fantastic short stories, which I'd never read much short fiction. I grew up reading poems and primarily novels. Um, And I just sort of fell in love with the form. And about two-thirds of the way through the class, we read this Eudora Welty story called Powerhouse. Um, And not much happens in terms of plot in that story. And yet, by the time I finished the story the first time, I felt like there had been some like major league catharsis, <laughs> and I didn't know why, um, because when I looked back at it as a you know young scholar of literature, there didn't seem to be sort of any normal sort of dramatic tension, um, or the dramatic tension wasn't created in a normal way, in a way I was accustomed to, um, and I, I still read that story with a certain amazement and curiosity, but I can I can just about pinpoint that moment as. That story is the story that made me want to learn how the meaning gets made. It was no longer enough to, you know, sort of articulate theme and explicate. And do you think that it's something you should be able to figure out or should it be a mystery? Well, I love this, you know, I love the, this story, which may be apocryphal, um, about Eudora Welty reading at the Milledgeville College for Women or Teachers College, I think it was called, um, when she read some uh one of her short stories and she gets to the very end and there's the polite applause and she begins to take questions and a student in the back row sort of raises her hand and says miss welty that's a beautiful story but can you tell us what it means and eudora welty apparently said well sure sugar i'll tell you what it means and she turned to the first page of the story. She read the whole story again. So in that way, I love that idea that we can't simplify it. We can't distill, you know, a work of literature, a poem, a play, a short story to one line of meaning. Um, and so I'm kind of pleased that I can't say for sure exactly how that story works, but I feel like I have a much better understanding now than I did before. Because then you're talking about craft maybe instead of meaning yeah that's right we're no longer talking about like writers really 
I never really trust a writer who can articulate what his or her own themes are, because if you write the way I do, and I think, you know, with the exception of the rare literary genius, right, I think we're writing in order to discover, and we're really just writing about characters, trying to write lives, as my mentor Lee Abbott says, lives real enough to have been lived. And the themes will sort of bubble their way to the surface, right? Whatever I'm concerned about um, when I'm writing a story, whatever I'm sort of puzzling through spiritually, socially, you know, in terms of my personal life, that stuff's going to get in there. Um, and that's how theme gets made, I think. Um, so if we think about art lying at the confluence of the mechanical, which is craft, and the conceptual, which is imagination, um, the craft side is really all we're, all we're in control of. <laughs> the imaginative side, it just it comes from someplace unbidden. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bruce Mahart, author of the novel The Wake of Forgiveness. Well, you mentioned earlier that you, you don't really like to think about theme, and I, I've noted in some interviews I read with you when they ask you about theme, you're like, you sort of keep that away. I, I've talked to writers who say that they learn about their themes from reading reviews or hearing what other people say, yeah. and that's how they learn about their own obsessions. Would you agree with that? Sometimes. I mean, it depends on the reader. It depends on the reviewer. I was sort of struck. I was surprised that the first novel, for instance, you know, The Wake of Forgiveness, Everybody was just talking about the relationship between father and son, father and son, father and son. And to me, you know, the book is sort of the, the gravity that holds that text in orbit for me is the relationship between a, a boy and the ghost of a mother, an absent mother. Um, and so that sort of surprised me to see, you know, how my impression of something just very simple in terms of topical, what what is the emotional thrust of the story um, could be read in two different ways. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know what people say about the thematics. of. The, <laughs> I tend not to listen to, to much of that because, I mean, I think it matters, but it doesn't matter much to me. I'm just trying to write stories about human beings. The Wake of Forgiveness focuses on the Scala family, uh, Czech immigrants. It's a father and four sons in rural Texas in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The main character is Carl, the youngest boy. His mother died in childbirth, and this is a source of anger and sadness for the entire family, one that no one seems to be able to get past, and the father is very cruel to his sons, particularly Carl, and he works them hard on the land. Tell me about the genesis of this story for you. You know, for me, all good stories are like result from the convergence of two distinct stories. And for me, I was I was an absolute sort of um, mama's boy growing up. I was just I was afraid. I'm kind of a big guy now, but I was I was a small boy as a child. Um, my mother just was this sort of source of comfort and protection for me. Um, and so I kind of hid behind her um, in many ways. And I had a friend um, who, when we were in high school, his mother was murdered um, in Texas. And I always felt sympathy for him. But the older I got, the more I realized that maybe I didn't feel empathy. 
like that it was inconceivable to me that a, a, a boy could become a man without a sort of strong maternal figure. Um, and so that was always, like that was there in my you know, subconscious, um, sort of lurking to infuse itself in whatever I wrote in some way or another, I suppose. Uh, and, but then there was this story, and I can't speak to why I wrote this book when I did, like why this story came out when it did. Um, but my father had told me a story, you know, he's from a good storytelling family all of these years ago. It was probably a cautionary tale. Like I probably refused to like weed his garden. He was a big gardener and he said, you know, you are too going to weed the garden and you think you've got it bad. Let me tell you about these. And he, he told me this story, um, about this family and they were poor, and the father was really mean and heartbroken, and he used his own sons, like he harnessed his own sons to the plow and made them pull his plow. And because they strained against the harness so much, their necks were like permanently kinked to one side or the other. And when he's telling me this story, I can remember just thinking, well, that is absolute hogwash. It's the least believable. Like, this is not convincing, convincing storytelling pop. Um, and when I hear a story like that that feels, like, dramatic, maybe even tragic um, in its potential, but I don't believe it, it becomes this kind of, as a, as a relatively ambitious, maybe, you know, arrogant... Um, I think all writers have to be a little bit arrogant. Um, it becomes a challenge for me. I want to see if I can make myself believe it I, on the page, in a story. I want to see if I can m make it convincing for the reader, if I can render something unbelievable in terms of verisimilitude. Um, and so that's, that's where that story comes from, and it's really the only kind of kernel of truth in this entire book, which otherwise comes entirely out of my imagination. But I found out after I wrote the book, um, I told my father, we were sitting out back of his house having a beer, and I said, hey, Pop, I wanted to tell you before this book comes out, you told me this story about these boys, and their dad was really mean, and he harnessed them to the plow, and their necks were all messed up. And he said, uh, I said, I just wanted to let you know I used that in my book. And he's like, oh, well, that's fine. He said, but, you know, one of those, one of those boys was your Uncle Benny. And I was like, I don't. I don't even know who Uncle Benny was. And Uncle Benny was my oldest aunt's first husband, and he was a mean cuss, and his father had been a mean cuss who had harnessed the boys to the plow, and their necks were warped. And so it turned out the story that I thought unbelievable and therefore tried to make believable in fiction was actually true, and that's just sort of the weird way things work sometimes. And so when you sort of were marrying these images of, a motherless child and someone who and a child and children whose father is unusually cruel and works them very hard. Yeah. Did you know that it had to be set in the past? It felt like it did. Um, it felt like to me that this entire the entire endeavor uh, very quickly became some way to reconcile myself with this sense of place that was so important in my family. Um, 
And my dad grew up on this farm very close to Lavaca County. He grew up in Wharton County, but we had lots of relatives in Lavaca County. And I was sort of the first generation of Mahart urbanite. You know, I grew up in this big city of Houston, Texas, like fourth largest city in the country at the time. Um, but I had 34 first cousins, and all but three of them or four of them lived in the country. Um, and so I think I was always conflicted, and I think in a, in a productive way, because we'd go for weddings or Easter or Christmas or family reunions or funerals. All of these things would take place inevitably in the country. Um, and so I knew that that place was important to the family, that it was the kind of nostalgic homeland. Um, and all of the stories were rural stories. And yet, and I found it to be beautiful. Um, and yet I always felt very lonely and kind of out of place there um, because, you know, my cousins knew their way around. You know, they weren't scared of the bulls in the pasture and they, like, they would see a cottonmouth and just, like, crush it with their boot. And, you know, I was like the stupid city kid who, you know, was kind of timid, didn't know anything about the country. I once, like, ran into my aunt's electric cattle fence and sort of knocked myself unconscious, like, because I didn't know what it was. Um... So I think maybe I wasn't aware of it when I was doing it, but when I look back at it, I see the, I see the novel as a way to reconcile myself with my family's, like, what is my place in my family's past? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bruce Mahart, author of the novel The Wake of Forgiveness and the short story collection Men in the Making. One of the things that I noticed that I loved the most was the dialogue. Mm. I thought that the it was so sharp and witty and very place-based and people-based. And you had these clash of cultures that came out and the things that they said to each other, yeah. where they came from. I mean, how hard did you work on that? Not. You know, you just say it aloud. I mean, I, I was aware kind of dialect, idiom you know, uh, syntax, those things don't change that much over the course of many generations. Like the one, like the one sort of mode, it's kind of invaluable um, element of research that I um, made use of when I was writing this was that I just got a hold of all the newspaper articles. There were f five or six newspapers in Lavaca County, weekly newspapers in Lavaca County. And I just photocopied and read all of them um, that were printed during the the peer, like the days and weeks of the events um, of the novel. And there's three kind of distinct time periods. And rural newspapers, and and I'm sure this was true in uh, you know in Colorado newspapers too. Um, they were written in the vernacular. There was nothing hoity-toity or sort of learned about the language. Um, the news was rendered for the people in the language of the people. And so I just started getting a feel for, like, not only I knew how my country relatives spoke, and they have some wonderful kind of idiomatic quirks that aren't, they're not novel, but they're fascinating. Like this, like my grandfather would say, you know, well, he's a good man, ain't it? Um, and it sounds like it's a pronoun confusion 
but it's not at all. It's what it means is he's a good man, ain't it true? Isn't that so? Um, and certain regions of uh, of England have a perfect corollary. They say in it, um, which means isn't it so? Um, but but it's not something you hear in very, very many regions, you know, that particular kind of quirk. Um, and so once I had a feel for that, I just took the way that my relatives, especially my grandfather, spoke, um, and then kind of just let the language and the diction of these old newspaper articles just kind of soak in for a while. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm, I'm so fascinated in point of view. I feel like we have, you know, whereas once all of our sort of masters, the great Russian masters, were all writing in omniscient point of view, almost no one does it anymore. Um, and there's lots of theories as to why that's true. No, we don't believe in God the way we used to, and therefore how can we believe in a God-like narrator? I don't think that's entirely convincing, but it's, it's probably convinces some people um, in the secular world. I think it's just really difficult to do. Um, and when it's done well, it's amazing. Um, Edward Jones, who I think won the Pulitzer Prize for The Known World, that book is wild and beautifully omniscient. Um, and I'm fascinated in point of view, so I wanted to bring a contemporary example of a story that, that sort of operates in this omniscient way. And it's not, it's probably a story that lots of people have have experienced, but I remember when it came out, I was in graduate school at Ohio State University, and it appeared in The New Yorker, and it's, um, I'm just going to read the moment where this story, which is called Bullet in the Brain by Tobias Wolf, the moment it earns its omniscience, and we realize this is not just a, a third-person limited, like a very close third-person narrator. And so this occurs about halfway into the story, and what happens no surprise, given the title Bullet in the Brain, is that this guy, Anders, who is our protagonist, um, is in a bank when it's, um, it's being robbed, and he can't prevent himself from like making wisecracks um, about these very kind of cliched bank robbers. And so they shoot him in the head, and he dies in the story. Um, and we don't realize that we're in an omniscient story until Tobias Wolf does this, which is brilliant. Um, the bullet smashed Anders' skull and plowed through his brain and exited behind his right ear, scattering shards of bone into the cerebral cortex, the corpus callosum, back toward the basal ganglia, and down into the thalamus. But before all this occurred, the first appearance of the bullet in the cerebrum set off a crackling chain of ion transports and neurotransmissions. Because of their peculiar origin, these traced a peculiar pattern, flukishly calling to life a summer afternoon some forty years past, and long since lost to memory. After striking the cranium, the bullet was moving at 900 feet per second, a pathetically sluggish glacial pace compared to the synaptic lightning that flashed around it. Once in the brain, that is, the bullet came under the mediation of brain time, which, Anders, which gave Anders plenty of leisure to contemplate the scene that, in a phrase that he would have abhorred, passed before his eyes. It's worth noting 
what Anders did not remember, given what he did remember. He did not remember his first lover, Sherry, and what he had loved most madly about her. And I'll sort of stop there, because it gets a little PG, but... Um, the brilliant move here is that through the authority that this narrator has with this kind of neurological science, right? The, br the bullet goes into the brain, and the brain is so much faster than that 900 feet per second bullet that really what could happen is that our lives could flash before our eyes. The brain has plenty of time, but this is in effect a kind of riff um, against that cliche that our lives pass before our eyes. Um, and what happens is that this omniscient narrator goes on to tell us all these beautiful and tragic um, and profound moments in this man Anders' life and in his life that do not come to the fore of his memory in these fractions of a second when he's dying. And instead, what does flash before his eyes is one day on the baseball diamond when he was a kid and how one of his friend's cousins who was visiting from the South said that shortstop is the best position they is instead of, you know, there is. Um, and that's what he remembers. And it takes this sort of, this wild omniscience to tell us not only why he's remembering what he's remembering in neurological terms, but to tell us everything that the character doesn't remember. Um, that's true omniscience. Like an omniscient narrator knows the past, knows the future, knows what every character's thinking or feeling, and knows what the characters aren't remembering. That seems to me sort of really beautiful. How about your contemporary writing? What would you choose to read? It could be something that you found hard or tricky or something that changed. Yeah, well, I think the moments that were the most difficult, you know, because I, I was trying to, to write this very kind of powerful, omniscient narrator um, because we've got, you know, the tension between brothers and the maternal... Um, nuances of the story I was thinking of it and and this is a very Catholic sort of culture the German Czech culture which most of Texas I wouldn't describe as a, a heavily Catholic state but these Czech Germanic pockets are, are very Catholic and it felt to me kind of I don't know it felt to me kind of biblical um, these old 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 stories of shattered families fractured families um, and the way we either forgive each other and forgive ourselves or fail to do so um, so I wanted this kind of this omniscient feeling, like the narrator sees everything, which meant um, the narrator knew what was going on with the animals. The narrator knew what was going on with, at one moment in the book, with, um, you know, a fetus while it's still in the womb. Um, and so I guess I'll read one of those moments because those are di it's difficult because there's not, you have Tolstoy. <laughs> Um, and then you have this handful of um, contemporary writers who have braved a, a real omniscience. There weren't a lot of examples for me. Um, and so I struggled with it. And so I think I'm going to read just a scene about um, an owl that appears in the novel. On the banks of the creek, 
where the remaining men stand winding frayed wet twine around their wrists, reeling in their jugs of corn mash and laughing and passing the wet coins of their wagers between them, the horned owl perches amber-eyed and ruffling rainwater from her feathers, watching from the sheltered lower branch of a sweet gum tree. Across the creek, along the far bank, near the tangle of water oak and pine roots and the deep impressions of boot soles in the wet silt, she discerns the slightest distinction in the clustered dancing of blue stem spires, knowing by some sharp and instinctive insistence in the grainy fibers of her muscles that rain and wind bend the uppermost inches of grass blades while the scuttling of prey and the dragging of a tail will set the reeds to shivering upward from the tillers. And then she's aloft and diving, her wings thrown back and rippling as she descends across the water and meets the ground with outflung wings and extended legs. The men turn their heads in the darkness, sensing amidst the drizzling rain and uncertain wind her silent and feathery slice through the air and across the creek. Then the little opossum shrieks and writhes as the hard points of the talons break the skin and dig deeply in. A moment more, and they're airborne again, the prey fighting its useless clash of twisting tail and snapping teeth knowing in its thoughtless and animal intuition that to effect escape by the instinctive feigning of its own death is as unlikely as is the flight itself of a wingless creature over treetops. Now that's difficult to write, like you're trying to inhabit the senses of an owl being dis like sort of decidedly un-owl-like, um, and then to, to sort of inhabit the thoughtless thoughts, if you will, of, you know, of a, a creature like an opossum. Um, and yet I, I felt very much like if the novel were to be successful, um, we needed to know that we were in the hands of a narrator who, who had those capabilities. Like the novel was, you know, in its ambitions, maybe, maybe, maybe too big for my britches, so I needed a narrator who was a lot more powerful and knowledgeable than I was. So where do you write? Boy, you know, I've written on airplanes at 35,000 feet. Like, I really tend to prefer a little white noise, and it's really hard for me to write at home. So I usually go to a coffee shop or something. I mean, it's become a kind of cliche, like... You walk into a coffee shop, look for the guy wearing a beret. You know, there's the dude who's a who you know thinks himself a writer. Um, but I like I like the anonymity of just being one person among a bunch of other people while they're going about their business. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? My favorite spot in the house is the kitchen. I love being in the kitchen. Um, and I, you know, sort of if if I enjoyed cooking enough to think I could make it a career, I would be like a garde manger. Like I just love playing around with those kinds of techniques in the kitchen or making a nice sauce or there's great comfort in feeding a family too. Like I love to bake my own rolls and bake bread. So I, I, I go to the kitchen first. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife, you know, my wife is very lucky in that my wife's a fantastic writer. She also understands probably all of the ways in which I am can be prone to 
self-consciousness. You know, she's the most comforting voice in my life. So, like, she's like the smartest person I know, and she writes beautifully. I always go to her first. How have you dealt with rejection? You just, like, writers are stubborn people. Like, I've got... I remember in graduate school when I was sending out stories, almost certainly before I needed to be sending them out because I wasn't ready yet. Um, But I used that rejection as a kind of motivating force. Um, I would hang. I had this kind of a manila envelope, and it was stuffed with rejection letters, and I had it... Like, it was the only thing on this big cork board that was in front of my computer where I would, you know, do my work at the time. Um, So you just turn the rejection, sort of turn it toward good. And what is your favorite word? I think the word brood is a favorite. I sort of stumbled across it in, um, I was at Mass, and there was a reading from the book of Matthew about the, you, John the Baptist calls, calls the, um, the people coming to, to repent. You brood of vipers. Um, and I thought brood is a fantastic word. Brood must be a really handy word for the poets because it's a noun, and it's also a verb that has about four or five different connotations. And it just sounds good. Brood. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Bruce Mahart, author of the novel The Wake of Forgiveness. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The music for First Draft was performed and produced by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.